Anything you'd like to add to that before we sit down and we begin? Well, I think we just really like sitting in stools. Uh, that's, that's one of the reasons why we do this as well. No. <laughs> but there is like a pretty marked change in the book of Acts that we see take place from the first half where we really track the Jesus movement as it started in Jerusalem and then transitioning to the second half where we're just following the Apostle Paul. And so we, we really need to do this again so that we can, that's what we decided. We're like, wait, this is like, there's, there's kind of, there's a lot of new stuff here. We're continuing a lot of themes, but a lot of things are subtly shifting. And so we, we just want you guys to be aware of those things because we necessarily don't want to lay them out in each and every sermon. So this is kind of an introductory series to the second half of Acts. So Great. thanks for being here with us. Yeah, and we're going to do a little pastor's trick now. So we're going to ask you to pray with us. And when you come and open your eyes, we'll be sitting. So I'm just going to tell you the trick. <laughs> Before we do it, okay? So would you uh, bow your heads, close your eyes, and pray with us. Father God, we're so thankful for this opportunity to come together and consider your son Jesus as a community, God. We just thank you for those new people that you've brought into our midst, uh, new faces, new friends. God, we just pray that they'd find a safe place here wherever they're at in their consideration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you'd just uh, make them know that they have a home here, they have a place where they can do that uh, with warm, friendly uh, people who want to help them want to help them grow and, and learn more about this Jesus and what it might mean to follow him in their life here in the city of Seattle. So we pray that. We pray that you'd give Ryan and I energy and wisdom and, and things that are helpful and things that we need to uh, wrestle with, God. May you just let those things stay and remain in our hearts and minds. And anything that's not from you, God, we just ask that that goes in one ear and out the other um, and that we wouldn't think twice about it. So uh, we give this time to you. We ask that you are here with us by your spirit, empowering us to consider well. In your son Jesus, his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ta-da. <laughs> we did it. We did this it. That's good. This it's is a great, great trick. Great yeah, trick. Yeah. Well, um, let me start off with a question here, Dave. Okay, ask uh, me a question. How are you doing? How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. I officiated a wedding nice. last night. That's good. In Cleelum. Love Cleelum. So that was fun. That's great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I uh, spent a weekend in Orcas Island. Orcas, yeah. love Orcas. Uh, bicycling with people who are better than me, so I'm oh, uh, yeah. suffering today. Okay. So it's a little rough, I hurt. <laughs> My bottom half is just done. Yeah. So we're both a little tired. Uh, yeah, I guess. Which is nice that we get to sit. Yeah, that's really, that's a plus. It's okay. a big plus. Good. Yeah. Well, uh, how about you bring us up to speed here with what we were talking about um, in the book of Acts. Give us kind of the 30,000 foot view real quick to bring everybody up to speed with what this book of Acts is really about. Okay, if you've got a Bible, grab it now. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the ends of the rows that you could grab. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those home as a gift from us to you. Uh, we'll put this scripture on the screen as well, but we'll be flipping back and forth, so it might be nice uh, to make notes in your personal Bible or this Bible, make it your personal Bible, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. So the first thing you need to know about the book of Acts is it is written by the same author as the Gospel of Luke. There's four Gospel accounts which record the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Luke is one of those Gospels. And Luke also wrote a sequel uh, to his Gospel of Jesus called the book of Acts. So, so Luke really meant them to be read together and to be um, understood together. The book of Luke, the life of Jesus, and then the book of Acts is the beginning of the Jesus movement. It counts the 30 plus years of the beginning of that movement. And so if at the, I want, I want to show you the end of the gospel of Luke in chapter 24. I want you to see what happens uh, because it's really, there's a pivot point here to the beginning of Acts because they're meant to be 
understood together, okay? So here we are, book of Acts, or sorry, book of Luke, chapter 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus has died, he's been buried in the grave, and there's been reports that he is no longer in the grave. As they were talking about these things, the disciples, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do you doubt? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Here it is. Verse 48. You, talking to his disciples, are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So you are witnesses you have seen the things that I've done, my ministry, my miracles. You've heard me speak. You saw my death. You saw me buried in the grave. And now you've seen and touched me and ate with me after I have risen from the dead. You have witnessed these things. You are witnesses. Now, turn with me. Um, it's just going to be a few page turns to the right to the book of Acts. It's right after the Gospel of John. And we're going to look now at the beginning of the book of Acts. And we're going to see some overlap here. But basically, Luke is going to recount at the beginning of Acts this scene for us, this same scene prior to Jesus' ascension. And we're going to hear him say something similar, but something slightly different. different. And then I'll explain how these two statements together help us understand what it is to be a witness. So, starting in verse 6, the book of Acts. So, when they had come together... They asked him, that's Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay. So, if you were with us, this is a little bit of a recap, but what we've said is, in the end of Luke, what Jesus tells them is, you are witnesses. Past tense. You have witnessed what has happened. Now, at the beginning of Acts, he tells the same disciples, you will be my witnesses. Future tense. You will go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in the surrounding areas, and even to the ends of the earth. And so what we've said and why we've called this series, both the spring and now we've called it Witness, is we're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a witness. 
And it means that we have seen something and experienced something and that we then must go and do something. It's both. You can't just go do something if you've never experienced something and you can't just experience something and then not do anything. To be a witness means you have to do both. There's the past and the future tense. And that's what we'll see in the book of Acts is that these witnesses that have experienced the risen Lord Jesus will be those who then go and by necessity, they can't help it, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything that they've seen and heard and experienced. That's beautiful. And we too are witnesses if you have experienced the life-changing power of Jesus Christ in a relationship with God through him. That's what it means to be a witness. And so to start uh, this second half of Acts, because the second half of Acts is focused on the last part of that sentence, which is to the ends of the earth. The first part of Acts, which focuses around the Apostle Peter in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, which are, uh, you can kind of think of it like Seattle, King County, state of Washington, okay? And then the Apostle Paul comes on the scene, and he is the apostle who takes the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of those boundaries to the rest of the world, and we'll talk about him today. So who is this Paul? And so what I want to do, just to give you a, an introduction, I want you to look, flip over with me to chapter 9 of the book of Acts. This is the first place we see the apostle Paul, Okay. Now, the thing you need to know about the Apostle Paul is that he was, before he was a Christian, he was the one who was stirring up all the people against the Christians. He was leading the charge to persecute Christians, to kill Christians, to imprison prison Christians. So uh, you kind of need to know the background to hear uh, this story about the Apostle Paul. So read along with me, starting in ver verse 1, chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that, he found, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and, therefore, and, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias 
departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, I don't think we have this up on the screen, but I just want to show you he's witnessed the risen Lord Jesus. Now look how fast he becomes a witness. Look at this. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of, who, of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You see it? He was a witness. And he was a witness. So, that's why we're calling this series Witness. <laughs> and the Apostle Paul gives us the greatest and best example uh, the man who was a witness and took his witness to non-Jews. Many, many of us, probably most of us in the room, I, mean, I can say that pretty confidently, most of us in the room are Gentiles, non-Jews. And we are sitting here in part because what the Apostle Paul witnessed, he did not keep to himself, and he became a witness to the ends of the earth. And we're proof of that. We're about as far away as you can get from Jerusalem. So we have everything to thank the Apostle Paul. Yeah, it's, it's really good. The essential to his story there is this, uh, what, what you see there is that he was filled with the Holy Spirit as well. This is the theme that came up over and over as we did our first series in the book of Acts. In fact, we, we joked that in our Bibles, uh, this book is called the Acts of the Apostles. It's not exactly clear where that came from, but you might even rename uh, this book the Witness of the Holy Spirit. Because um, this is what happens. The disciples at the very beginning uh, in Jerusalem after Jesus uh, had died are waiting, Jesus says, wait and I'll send you the comforter. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. Once they receive the Holy Spirit, then they go out to witness and power and preaching. Same thing here happens to Saul. He, he's waiting. Um, he sees Jesus. He's waiting. Ananias comes, prays for him. He receives the Holy Spirit and then he goes out and is a witness. And so there's a key ingredient here, which is the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, no witness can happen. No right and true witness uh, can happen. And uh, so that's kind of a key ingredient in this whole book as well. And so you see it right there. It's, it's great. So, and we're going to continue to see that over the course of these next nine or ten weeks here. We're going to see the Holy Spirit show up in power through Paul to see some significant witnessing happening. So, yeah. Okay, now let's, um, so let's dive a little bit deeper. Okay, we kind of heard how Paul well, Saul becomes Paul, God changes his name, and uh, Saul becomes Paul. Uh, let's figure out who is this Paul, who is this Paul, so that we can kind of be familiar with him as we continue to read about him over the next 10 weeks. So we're going to talk about five things that Paul is. Ryan, you go ahead and tackle the first one. Who is Paul? Well, Paul is first and foremost, he is a Jew. And uh, that might be an obvious thing to say, but really whenever we try to understand anybody from history, we really have to grasp them in their context. Uh, just like if you want to understand uh, who a 21st American is, you have to understand the context of 21st century 
United States. Um, now all of us are, or most of us here would say that they are an American in the 21st century, so we don't actually have to work that hard to understand one another, right? But what we did in our last four weeks is we actually unpacked what does it mean to be an American, and we actually found a lot of things that were native uh, to what it means to be an American so that we could uh, really talk to each other about ourselves, you know? And so we're going to understand Paul, and we're going to look at his first century Jewish context. That's the first thing he was. He was a first century Jew, and he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. First century Judaism at this point had split up into four sects. The, the leaders were part of four sects that were, you could say, in battle uh, over getting the common person of the day to follow them. Okay, so you have the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were on the religious council. Um, they're around the time of Jesus. We see Jesus debating these guys. Um, you have the, the Zealots, and then you also have this fourth group of the Herodians. And what's really cool to see in the Gospel accounts, and Luke highlights this really well, it's all four of these sects, even though they're um, always um, debating each other and fighting each other for followers, they unite to kill Jesus. <laughs> That the Pharisees and the Sadducees hire a zealot, that's Judas Iscariot, to, to um, uh, betray him. They bring up false witnesses against him. And then they hand him over to the Herodians who take him before the, uh, the, the, um, the, the Romans, the leaders of the day. I was, I was like, Pontius, it's Pontius Pilate. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Pontius Pilate, in, in order to get him killed. So we see a mass participation of all these first century Jews. Paul is uh, to kill Jesus. Paul is a Pharisee. And so uh, what the Pharisees primarily did was they focused on reforming Israel. They said, if we could just live rightly, God would bless us again, overthrow the Romans, and we'll be able to uh, live a, a freely expressive religion of Judaism once more. We, we'll, we'll practice Hebrew, uh, the, the Hebrew religion of the Mosaic Law. And so that's what Paul was really all about in the first century, okay? And this is why when this fifth sect emerges... That's Jesus' followers, 3,000 followers in one day, and then they're adding to their, day, to, to their number day after day. This is a fifth sect on the scene that's exploding. That's called the way. That's what it comes to be called. The fifth sect is called the way at the very beginning. Paul's trying to clamp this thing down. Why is this one particularly offensive to him? Three main reasons. One, it posits a crucified Messiah. Um, a crucified Messiah really means a defeated Israel um, theologically to the, to the Pharisees. Um, and so they very, uh, wanted to shut this down pretty quickly. The second thing uh, that was going on is uh, these people were talking about Jesus like the Hebrews always talked about God. So there was some idolatry that they were fearing was happening in this first century. So Saul's trying to cut that, uh, really get that unlocked. And then third, um, there's some racial exclusivity um, that the, uh, the Jews always had, that this fifth sect of the way seems to be straying from. All of a sudden, uh, how, does, how does this way emerge? In the gospel preached in tons of other languages to other people. And then they're going back out into the empire. And so uh, these, these other four sects are pretty upset by that. They really viewed um, being a, a Jew as one of racial exclusivity. And Paul and, his, or, and all the, the way is really working against that. So Paul is, is really working hard against that. And uh, he really is trying to shut that down because he re he's very zealous in his pursuit of trying to reform Israel. And all of a sudden, we have an offshoot of Israel in this fifth sect that is working contra to how Jewish law has always worked. And so Paul is really trying to shut that down. And uh, what's very interesting is he's the one that becomes reformed. <laughs> He comes into a contact with Jesus. All of a sudden, his mind changes about what it means to have a crucified Messiah. All of a sudden, his mind changes about really um, this idolatry piece, who is God. He calls him Lord in his encounter. 
That's significant. And then over the course of these uh, next uh, few years, we're going to see Paul's mind change about the racial exclusivity of what it means to be part of the people and family of God. Okay? So he's, uh, he has become reformed himself, but this is what is really key to take away. He is still a reformer. This office of being the reforming type, Paul is still very much a part of. And so this is how he operates within Christianity as well, as we see it in the first couple centuries. As uh, the Christian movement grows and it goes into more cities, as really he's responsible for a lot of it, he'll start churches. What we see is he's very good at identifying parts of this the way, this fifth Jewish sect, in his mind, still very much a fifth Jewish, Jewish sect, the way that are starting to get off base. All of a sudden, the Christians in the way are looking just like the rest of the world. Does that sound familiar to you? And so this Paul is a big reformer within the way itself. We see this in his letters. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, but Paul really will function in that um, for the rest of his life. You know, uh, He worked really hard to get away from Mosaic law and instead point to Abraham. There's a re-emphasis in theology there. Look, he believed in God by faith, and he was righteous that way. He worked really hard to, to get people away from this notion of following God's uh, rules in order for God to accept them and love them and work for, their, work for them. And so we really celebrate a lot of these reforms, don't we? We love the fact that Paul is a reformer because when those things get off base, we, we really fall into a lot of traps. And so for those who will, Paul has been a reformer for 2,000 years now, and he can still be a reformer for us today, all right? So, yeah, a Jew. A Jew. And, you know, I think, I think the application for us even today, because we live in something of a land of Christians, is what Paul would say is, yeah, there might be a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but what is the way within Christianity that is the true, authentic, right, life-giving, God-glorifying, Jesus-proclaiming way within the bigger umbrella of Christianity? And that's what we consider together is we are trying, like Paul, to find the way. He would never think of himself outside of his Jewishness or, or Christianity outside of Jewishness. It's the way within to true, right relationship with God, Jesus as the Messiah that the Jewish people had always been waiting for. And I think that's so important to understand for us because we're trying to do the same thing. And we might hear uh, people on this side or this side uh, that are calling themselves Christian, but in our head we're like, I'm not sure that's the way. And, and Paul's doing the exact same thing. He's trying to find the way within the people of God, big umbrella, that is truly the way to righteousness. And it's through Christ Jesus, his death and resurrection, not through our own. And we'll talk about that in a second. So he is a Jew, and he doesn't ever stop being a Jew. He never even conceptualizes himself outside of that. Um, but he finds the way within it. Yeah, yeah and, and he works tirelessly for it, you know? And the question is, to what end? What, to what end is he trying to be the, to, to make this way um, flourish in, in these cities where he goes? To what end is he working, Dave? Yeah, so this is the second thing that Paul is. He is the ultimate unifier. Paul is a unifier. Uh, he sees the people of God, and, and he believes that God has gizm, given him this new vision, especially based on what Ryan said, of a diverse multilingual, multicultural, multi-socioeconomic people of God that all are unified by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So he's the ultimate unifier. And he'll say these things in his letters, which we now um, call the holy scriptures of God. Paul says this in his letter to the church in Galatia, the book of Galatians. He says this, there is no longer Jew or Greek. 
There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. There is no, uh, they are all one in the Messiah or in the Christ Jesus. Paul was a unifier. <laughs> That's what he saw as his mission to the world, uh, which is so wild and crazy when you understand just how Jewish he was and the sect that he was within, which was the Pharisees, who saw themselves maybe even more than all the other sects as the pure Jewish people. And now he's the one saying, all peoples. It's, a, it's an amazing part of, of the legacy of the Apostle Paul and he saw it all possible because of what Jesus had done. So he is the great unifier of all people. He is, his work is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth that all God's people from every tongue, tribe, and nation might come together in the diverse, beautiful mosaic that is God's family. So he's the unifier. You got anything to add to that? Yeah, I think that um, what we're really encouraging people to do is as we go through this, this sermon series, we're going to be looking at Paul's life primarily, not so much his letters, but we would encourage people that to, to read along through Paul's letters as we go through the sermon series, because if you really look at these letters through the lens of his end goal of unification, a lot of things start to make a ton of sense. You know, we, we have Paul, the first person, being like, treat uh, your servants as your friends, just like you treat your friend. That's a, a statement of unity. You see him striving for the family unit to be unified, and ultimately we see him striving for churches to be unified, which is a very tricky thing when you have people coming from a lot of different backgrounds. He was uh, the biggest proponent for diversity in the church. This is something that we, we often hear in, in our churches today. I wish our church was more diverse. Paul was more zealous about diversity than you. <laughs> and so this actually brought a lot of, of difficulties. And uh, when you bring different people, different uh, backgrounds, different understandings, but he's really striving for some unity in some really beautiful ways. Um, this fifth movement, this fifth sect in Judaism of the way is one that is to be incredibly unified in a way that the world has never seen before. And so that's what I'd add. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, if you haven't spent much time in the Bible... Or if, even if you had, you might have just skimmed over Paul's letter to Philemon, which is a letter that he's written to a brother in another city who had a slave who, who probably either ran away or had gotten into some dispute with his master and the slave, Onesimus, comes to Paul and Paul receives him and then writes this letter back to Philemon, basically telling Philemon, hey, receive your slave as if you were receiving me. You see that? You see how profound that is? He's saying there is no difference between me, the Apostle Paul, who wrote almost half of the New Testament, and a slave who probably had a different skin color, who of course had no power or authority within the cultural context, and he's saying we are exactly the same. We are both brothers in Christ. It's the most profound stuff that you'll ever read. And it all started with Paul's understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he worked it out in the book of Acts. We'll read about as he worked it out in real life, through real relationships, in real places throughout the Greco-Roman world. So that's number two. He's a unifier. Now, how did he see, Ryan, then the unification? How did that play itself out 
in the real world. Yeah, and, and uh, Paul saw this happening through something called starting or planting churches. This unification was going to come to the world, come to the world through the church. And this is something that Jesus talked about in Matthew 16, Matthew 18. So this isn't Paul's idea. Uh, this is Paul picking up on Jesus's idea. So he was a church planter. That's the third thing. Paul was a church planter. Uh, one thing I want to point out to you guys that goes over Paul's uh, church planting, we have a lot of bookworms uh, here at Sedaris. That's just what happens when you make a a church we really focused on considering. People consider through books. Um, this book is called uh, Introducing Paul, for those of you who may, who may want to get it on Kindle or in hard copy, by Michael Bird, if you want to write down that name, Michael Bird, Introducing Paul. Um, it really goes over this, uh, who Paul uh, was and unpacks his church planting and really all the things we've been talking about today at more depth. I just want that to be an additional resource for anybody who wants additional resources. But he's a church planter. And uh, do, we have, do we have the timeline? Was it able to be converted? Nice. I'll throw this timeline up here. Uh, Nate, do you have a timeline of, like, uh, Paul's life? Boom, there it is. So uh, we're going to go through Paul's timeline so I can uh, help you see exactly where Paul's church planting started, okay? Uh, so he was born uh, around the time Jesus was born. Uh, it's commonly uh, assumed that Jesus was born around 4 B.C., um, instead of the zero, but that's okay. Sometimes we get dating systems wrong. Okay, so he's born around the time of Jesus. Jesus died when he was about 33 years old in AD uh, 29 or 30, and then Paul started persecuting the way shortly thereafter for three years. So we read a little bit about what that looked like. Uh, we did a sermon about Stephen, how Saul was in charge of the murder of Stephen. Um, he persecuted the way for three full years until his conversion in 33 AD, which we just read. Then he went on his, uh, we have actually 15 years here. There's a 15-year gap. You see that between 33 and 48. And, and, and those uh, 15 years, Paul was still in Seattle, King County, Washington. Uh, you know, he was still really close to where the Jesus movement started, and he was uh, really learning how to lead churches in, in those years. So 15 years of leading churches in Damascus and Antioch, that's in modern-day Syria. Uh, back then, it would have been referred to as Samaria as well. Um, so that is about 15 years, and then something happens, which we read about in Acts, which is God um, calls him out to go and start churches. Okay, so this is actually a, a movement of the Holy Spirit in a worship service where Paul is called to go out and start churches. And so he goes on his first missionary journey in 48 um, AD. And uh, so Paul, what, he's probably about 50 years old then, maybe a little bit younger, 45 to 50. And th th this, is this, church, this is where church planning started for him. And this is uh, what would occupy the rest of his life, the next 25 years. The last 25 years of Paul's life, he was planting churches. And in this first journey, uh, is very typical of his other ones, uh, he went to seven cities and started new churches in each in a single year. And uh, then on his way back home, he hit three of them. And it says he strengthened them, he encouraged them, he pointed elders over them in those three. Then he went back home, okay? And then shortly thereafter, he writes his epistle, epistle to the Galatians. Um, then he goes back down to Jerusalem. This is part of his reforming nature. All the, Jew, all the people in Jerusalem who were part of the way were like, wait, people have to be culturally Jewish, even if they're Gentiles, in order to practice. Paul's like, hold up, that's not true. He's still occupying in his reforming um, nature. Uh, we can all wear whatever clothes we want today as Christians because of what Paul did in that council. <laughs> um, then he goes on a second missionary journey, very similar to the first, writes more epistles to the, the churches that he visited, third missionary journey. See how long these are? 
And so the first one was one year, then we have a two-year one, then we have a three- or four-year stinted one. And each one of these, he's setting up, uh, well, the first one, only seven, but then about a dozen churches in the, in, in the second one and in the third church, in the third one. We're actually not quite sure how many. Uh, a dozen is probably a conservative guess. But he, he just spends his time planting churches one after another. Kind of makes us feel like, well, we've only done one in three years. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's Paul. So uh, next slide. Do we have one more? Yeah. Um, and then we get towards the back end of his life where he starts, um, he, he really goes into prison in Rome. And he suffers for his faith there. During these church planting times, he'd also been thrown out of cities. He'd been stoned himself. He'd received very, uh, a lot of beatings uh, from the, the Roman government during this time. He's, he, but he's church planting. He's writing epistles. He's church planting. He's writing epistles. Now he's um, making his final uh, trip to Jerusalem where he's arrested in 57 AD there. Um, and then he's in prison, brought back to Rome, took a long time to get there because of various shipwrecks. Then he's in house arrest in Rome, he writes some more epistles, then he gets let go, then he gets caught again, he writes some more epistles. I mean, he has this, this huge focus towards writing back to the churches that he started. This is what Paul did all the way until, uh, up until the end of his life, um, where he was in prison for three years, and finally he was killed by the Roman government through what's thought to be beheading. We're not 100% sure on that, but it's likely how a citizen of Rome would have been executed. We do know he was executed, and it was likely through beheading. So he gave his whole life to this. He suffered his whole life for it, and it cost him everything. That's the Apostle Paul. And this main focus for the, the back 25 years of his life, where Luke primarily focuses in, in this work of Acts, is he's a church planter. He's a church planter. He goes from church, to, or he goes from city to city, and his method was this: he'd go into the Jewish synagogue, and Luke says he would reason with them. He'd reason with them. This is the a marked difference from the first half of Acts. In the first half of Acts, we have a lot of sermons that are being preached, preached sermons. Okay, in the first half of the book of Acts, Luke is, he loves to pick up on all these long, long uh, speeches, and in the first half, it is preaching. But Paul, there's a different verb that's used. It says he reasons with them. He reasons with Jews. He reasons with Gentile. He reasons with civic authorities. He, he's reasoning with philosophers. So in Paul, we have this pastoral side of him. We have this pastoral nature where he's just not going to get up, preach a sermon at a bunch of people, and hope they get it. Maybe that's what Peter did on the day of Pentecost, and he was largely successful, you know, 3,000 people. But Paul is a little bit different in this regard. He's reasoning with people. He's sitting down with them. He's having long conversations with them. He's listening to them. He's responding in civility. He would uh, go on, he kind of describes himself and his work doing this in, in the epistles as um, kind of a, a quieter, humble, gentle presence. Now, are, are those the three words that you would use to describe Paul after reading through his letters? Of course not. Of course not. You know, in, these, in his letters in the back half of the New Testament, he seems to be pretty explosive, pretty inflammatory. But we have to recognize something about these letters is they represent a piece of Paul. They don't represent all of who he is. They represent the piece of Paul that is contending for his precious churches that he started. That people have come into them and through false teaching have started to break them up. Through false teaching, they've started to point these precious churches that are focused on unification of the world and the human race, both to each other and to God, trying to convince them to be racist again. <laughs> trying to convince them that uh, fa awkward family dynamics can be happening, like uh, sons marrying their mothers. Trying to convince them that it's okay if they're not exactly loving one another. Like, ah, oh, that's a little too intense. How could people ever love one another like that? And so th these letters are... 
They're spoken with a, a lot of uh, what you could interpret as anger or pointedness, but that's because he's responding to specific circumstances where people are threatening the life of the way. And he's operating as that reformer and ultimately that protective pastor as well. He's really a, a, a loving and protective pastoral father. Uh, that's probably the, the, the broader brushstroke, the more accurate brushstroke you can paint of Paul uh, through. And, and that's what we're, what we're going to see in the book of Acts. This is what Luke is going to show us um, as we really look at his life and his journey. So, Yeah, I just, want, I just want to jam real quick just on that idea of reasoning with others. Um, if, if, if you don't know this yet, someone who's willing to reason with you is showing you the utmost respect. Do you know what you do with people you don't respect? You nod and you say, great. <laughs> it's great, great point. If you respect another human being, you will reason with them. You will keep the dialogue going that you might find some common ground. Here's the Apostle Paul reasoning with all sorts of people out of a deep sense of humility, out of a deep sense that they're all on the same footing at the cross of Christ. Do, do you see how profound this is in the Apostle Paul? He's willing to reason. Now, preaching is clearly a part, and we talked about that. You can listen to the introduction last time. It is clearly a part of the way the move of Jesus goes into the world. But it also is followed up by reasoning out of, out of a deep sense of love for other human beings. It's one of the reasons that we believe in church planting still because as a church gets to a particular size, it becomes very hard for real people to have real connections um, with pastors and others so that reasoning can happen. And so we think actually a really healthy gospel ecosystem in a city like Seattle is there's churches all over the city preaching the gospel and entering into conversation and reasoning with one another that people might find unity, they might be fully respected, uh, not just preach that. And I think that's just such a beautiful thing when you see the Apostle Paul doing this. Just his deep, I mean, in this guy, and he talks about it, he was at the top of his class as a Pharisee. So, so he has every reason to boast in his credentials. He knows the scriptures better than anybody. He, of anybody, could be like, I don't have time for you. Let me just talk to those other people that are living in my mind space. But he goes time and time again to anyone who wants to reason through the gospel of Jesus Christ through the scriptures, and he respects them deeply. So don't want to miss that about Paul. That's, that's what we want to be like. We want to respect people enough to reason with them, to converse with them, to wrestle with uh, the scriptures and with the gospel of Jesus because we know who are we. We're we all equal in the eyes of Christ. So uh, a great church planter. And, and he individualizes that reasoning. He reasons with Jews yeah. differently. He re reasons with Greeks differently. He, he reasons with uh, civil authorities uh, differently, philosophers differently. And so really the call of, of Paul for all of us is to be like, have I put myself in the headspace of my coworkers? H have I done that? Because otherwise it's just preaching. It's not really reasoning. There, there's a base here that he's working from, which is to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Gentile I became a Gentile. I'll, I'll become anything to any man that I might save some, Paul says. And so there's, there's this obsess, obsessive desire, hardworking understanding to try to get into other people's headspaces, communicate with them in their language to talk about Jesus. So, yeah. And he was largely successful. Largely successful. These, these churches uh, really 
grew to the point where they took over Western society. Well, not takeover is a little the wrong word. But they, they duplicated and duplicated enough. He created churches that weren't just good things in and of themselves, but that they could continue the movement. He converted them, he pastored them, and then he empowered them to do the same with others. And over the course of 250 years, eventually they would span the entire Roman Empire. It's really remarkable what he's done. Very successful. Why was he so successful? If you were to put your finger on one or two things. Well, obviously he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And um, in so doing, not only was he a church planner, not only was he a pastor, uh, but he was also, we should put him in the category of a prophet theologian. And so what we see, he was, of his day, a world-class mind. God had given them those natural giftings, and then he'd, God had redeemed through the Spirit those giftings to be used for his mission. Um, so Paul was speaking new, well, what's the, what, how did we say it? He's revealing new truth. Hidden truth, even, you could yeah, say. You could say truth that had not yet been revealed. It had always been there. He wasn't creating new theology, but he was revealing new truth uh, in a way, in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, for now the world to better understand who God is and his saving plan in the world. So he's a prophet, theologian, and, and we say it that way because he's not just a theologian. He's not just um, coming up with this stuff from his own brilliance. Uh, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's a prophet. He's given words of God to communicate truth in a way that has never been communicated before, and people recognize that. And, and so when he would write these epistles, these letters to the churches, people recognized, because they too had the Spirit, that these weren't just Paul's words, these were God's words. And so they began to um, hold Paul's letter on the same level as they did Old Testament scriptures. And they begin to copy them and pass them around. And in that way, he is a prophet, theologian, creating a new way of understanding what God was doing in the world through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And um, the, the, really the essence of what Paul was saying, that, that, that was, it's in the Old Testament. You see it, and Paul says it's, it, it is there, but now that Jesus has come on the scene, now we fully understand what God meant by these things. Uh, Paul, un unlike anyone else, explains to us how we are saved, which is not by our own effort, which is not through fulfilling ourselves the tenets of the Mosaic law or any religious system. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The, this is really the new revealed truth that Paul invites us into is this idea of grace alone, meaning it is a gift. There's nothing we can do to, to earn it. We do not deserve it. It is given to us by God, and we receive it by faith alone. There's nothing we have to do besides believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. And it's by Christ alone that there is no other Messiah. There is no other way. This is the one way to God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so Paul gives us that. And um, we, won't, we won't even hear a ton about that in the book of Acts. You have to read his letters <laughs> to understand that. And that's why it's so good to be reading his letters alongside considering his life. Because both are happening in parallel. Anything to add about the prophet theologian? I think you nailed it. Yeah. Nailed it. Nailed it. Wow. Way to go. 
Write that down. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, um, as a, so I, I kind of hinted at at the end there, we always read his theologizing, his prof, uh, what, how do you say that? His prophet theologizing. We always read that in conjunction with understanding the man himself. Nobody is just their ideas. Let me, let me say something very clearly here. This is, why, this is why we do church this way. If you are just encountering people's ideas and not their person, I'd be very weary. Paul would say, you cannot separate the two. He would always say that in his letters. You know me. You know what I'm like. And here's what I say. And so just be very careful in a world in which we have access to so many ideas that we are not following an idea without knowing anything about the person. The person and the ideas in God's world are always connected. And so, in Paul, what do we see, Ryan? What do we see when we just see the man Paul? Who, who was Paul in his very essence? Yeah, he was, uh, he was a... a a worker. <laughs> he was a laborer for God. Paul, um, from the very outset we saw it in the conversion, it was prophesied that he would suffer many things for my name. He is a suffering worker. And so we, we look at Paul as this guy, and we're going to read about it. We're going to see all the ways that he suffered in the book of Acts, which is going to be good for us, good for our soul, because a, a lot of us, I mean, who here has a problem with the Apostle Peter? Who here has a problem with the Apostle Paul? You know, there's a difference there. People can tend to treat Paul like just another philosopher. Let's wrestle with his ideas and reject the person. But in reality, we have to really evaluate him based on how we evaluate our friends. Hopefully how we evaluate all the authorities in our lives. How do they live their life? Can I trust that person? And Luke really helps us with that. Because I think a lot of us struggle with these difficult things that Paul says. Even Peter said that Paul writes some difficult stuff. Hard to understand, hard to stomach. We get that. Let's look at his life. Let's see how he's a laborer for the gospel who has prophesied that he would just suffer his whole life, and he did, and he died. And because um, ultimately, we, we, our belief is part, we are part of his genealogy. Christianity went west because of his suffering labor. Throughout the 2,000 years of church history, and, and the church reformation was fueled and sparked and fueled by his letters to the Galatians and Romans. So uh, Christianity in the West and Protestantism in general is we owe our genealogy to Paul. And, and so uh, we are here because people have trusted Paul is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and so how can we begin to trust Paul? Well, we need to look at his life like you were talking about. So would you jam on that any further? I think we yeah, let me, I just want to read one passage here about Paul. Paul, since the time he came on the scene, has been having to defend himself. For some reason, people always go after Paul. And we see this happening um, in the church in Corinth. There's been people come in and they, they start to say, oh, don't listen to that Paul. He, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's weak and all these things. And Paul begins to say, well, you can believe them, but here's my life. So let's throw that scripture up here. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Nate, you throw that up for me. So Paul says this, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews, those that are attacking him? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. 
Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Now we can just skim over this. Five times he was beaten to the edge of death. Forty, they thought, would bring a man to death. That's why in the book of Deuteronomy, the punishment was less one. Five times. So Paul, one of the things he'll say in other letters is, you know me by my body. You know my suffering by my body, meaning you can see my scars. I just wish we had more time to just sit in this. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, taken out beyond the city walls, cast down, and then had stones thrown at his head and his body in the hopes that they would kill him. But miraculously, he survives. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Now when he's writing this letter, he had only been on a third of his ship voyages, (laughs) and he already had three. He has more shipwrecks, if you just will read it in the book of Acts. Three times he was shipwrecked, and he was adrift at sea for a night and a day, floating apparently on a piece of wood. In danger from rivers, danger of robbers, danger of my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst. He wasn't sleepless because he had insomnia. He was sleepless because he hadn't eaten in days. In cold and exposure. This is the Apostle Paul. He sacrificed everything to take the gospel message of grace alone, by faith alone, and Jesus alone to the ends of the earth. And time and time again throughout history, even in his own day, people refuse to trust the words that he says. And we, as people now in 2018, need to wrestle with, why is it that we wrestle with Paul? Is it because he is wrong or is it because he is right? That he is speaking for God and he's proved it with his life and he's given everything. He was a laborer. He was a sufferer. He's the Apostle Paul. Can't wait to read about him. Consider him together and the work he's done with many others to do the same so that we might sit here 2,000 years later and receive the benefits of salvation through Jesus Christ and the joys of participation in this same mission because we are witnesses so that we can be witnesses to this city, to this world, and to the ends of the earth. Amen? Amen. Want to pray us out? Pray with me. <clears throat> Father, we, um, we come before you, and Lord, we just ask that you would uh, send your spirit and power and in might um, over our time, over our Sundays, and, and over our weeks, Lord, as we um, wrestle with Paul, as we get to observe, we get to witness what Paul uh, got to do in, uh, for your mission in the first century. 
Lord, we just ask that you would give us hearts of humility to your word and to your servants. God, we, we just know that you, um, that you love Paul, that you confirmed um, his ministry with countless miracles, uh, confirmed his letters with countless uh, power, uh, acts of power that you worked through him. And Lord, we just pray that uh, we would continue to, uh, through this series, seek to how we can help our city consider Jesus. And so um, towards this end, God, I just pray that you would send your spirit. And uh, we, we love you and we thank you. Amen.